Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Academics have studied the Appalachian region for many years, but its importance as a topic continues to grow. In her book, Unwhite, Appalachia, Race, and Film, Meredith McCarroll, Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowdoin College, discusses how people of the region are portrayed as a separate population group in movies, consistently with negative traits. Welcome, Meredith McCarroll. Hi, Meredith. It's great to talk to you. It's great to talk with you. Uh, Recently, I've become more interested in Appalachian studies, and I think your book greatly includes my interest in film as well. So I'm looking forward to our chat. One of the things I have found with many books devoted to Appalachia is that they often have an autobiographical tone, uh, particularly with academics who have chosen to study the region. And what are your personal ties to the area, particularly now that you currently are in Maine? (laughs) Sure. So I was born and raised in Western North Carolina and educated um, at Appalachian State University, where I went for my undergraduate degree and then also for my master's degree. Uh, Left the region, briefly came back uh, to University of Tennessee for my Ph.D., and now, as you mentioned, I am in Maine, um, which is, I suppose, technically at the top of the Appalachian Mountains, but is not culturally considered part of Appalachia. So um, my ties to the to the region are deeply personal, and it was an interesting thing to navigate as a scholar trying to write about a place who felt a deep connection to the place personally. How to how to you know weave in how to and you know, whether to and when to weave in the personal um, connections that I that I have to the place. So that was definitely a, a, a choice that I had to make about how to navigate that. One of the things you mentioned in the, right at the beginning of the book is that to an extent, you didn't even identify yourself as Appalachian. Do I get that mm-hmm. right? It's, is it a matter that yeah. you were just there and so you didn't even think about it? Sure. Yeah. So when I, I went to college, and took a course uh, called Experiencing Appalachia. And there was a moment when, you know, I was, I was at Appalachian State University, so it wasn't as if I had never heard the term Appalachian, but I thought of myself more as from the mountains, and I knew that I was from the mountains and that that was different than being, you know, just from the south. Um, so it wasn't an unfamiliar term, but in this course, I had this realization that I had some sort of, it's almost like I had, um, <laughs> I don't know if mountain cred is a thing, but if so, I realized that in that course that I had that, that I, it was um, helped me recognize what it meant to be Appalachian and that there was a history um, that helped shape the way that I saw the world, even though none of that was you know, something I was really thinking about consciously before that time. 
I know in reviewing your CV, um, this is not a, Appalachia is something that's pretty much been a part of your studies. Um, mm-hmm. Was there any specific reason other than that? Why did you choose to go ahead and make the, in this case, what seems to be a um, logical choice to uh, look at Appalachia, particularly as with culture being such an important part of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that I have had this through line of focusing on Appalachia throughout my work, but, you know, there was a, there was a, I was going to say a moment, there were many years where that's not how I would have defined my focus. So um, when I was in my master's program, I was, uh, I was working with Chip Arnold there, who is a great scholar of Appalachian literature and wrote then about Appalachian literature and particularly about roles of women in Appalachian literature. And then I moved to Boston and went to Simmons College and was working on a master's in gender and cultural studies. And while I was at Simmons, I was introduced to the concept of whiteness studies um, with a great scholar there, Loretta Williams who was my advisor. So I really, at the time, it felt like this very dramatic shift that I had moved from regional studies into really doing critical race theory. So because of my newfound interest in whiteness studies and the ways that 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 felt like a really important lens that I had been lacking that helped me understand racial structures and the ways that racial structures function with a focus on um, basically the way I was, what I was interested in was white complicity and the way that white people are perpetuating a system um, kind of unknowingly. So I took that interest in whiteness studies and that is why I went to University of Tennessee um, to work with Lavinia Jennings there. So during my time in my PhD, I really focused on um, American literature and film and specifically African-American literature because I was interested in representations of whiteness in African-American literature and film. And so that's what my, um, that's what my dissertation is on. And so during that time, there were a couple of people who were working in Appalachian studies. Every once in a while, there was a course in Appalachian literature, and I never took any of those because I felt like, well, I sort of know that, and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing African American lit now. In retrospect, I probably missed some good opportunities to work with great faculty there. But I really, at that time, felt like I had pivoted and was focusing on race now. And there was this, um, I, I guess synergistic might be the right word for it, this synergistic moment where I was in the mail room at University of Tennessee um, taking a break from working on a, a chapter about Ralph Ellison for my dissertation and just was, you know, really, really thinking about racial construction. And I saw a flyer for a reading by the Afrolatian poets. And someone in the mail room said, oh, come on, just come, come to the reading. And so I did. I went to the reading and uh, at this reading, there were, I wish I could remember everyone now, but I want to say there were, you know, six or eight poets there. Frank X. Walker was there. Crystal Good was there. And Keith Wilson was there. And Keith Wilson was, um, is a, an Afro-Latin poet who is often writing about 
his experience as being multiracial in Appalachia. And so hearing these poets wrestling with racial identity and regional identity, for me at that moment, it was, you know, it was just this amazing moment where these two fields of study that I had been seeing as very separate collided really beautifully. And so I um, reached out to a lot of those poets and was in touch with them and gradually began to reconceive my work as bringing together critical race theory and specifically whiteness studies into a look at um, regional studies with Appalachia. And I noticed you mentioned pretty early on that film was important to your overall study, but mm-hmm. you also brought in other parts of popular culture, I know, in some of your other presentations and things. But have you always felt that the film aspect of it was probably more important? I think that in terms, specifically with this project, in terms of representations of Appalachia, I do think that film is more important because simply because it has such a wide audience and it's a powerful medium. Um, and look, but also in my, in my dissertation project, it was important for me to look at literature and film um, for similar reasons, just that it, it kind of broadens the audience when you open it up to look at the way that, um, you know, cinematic depictions of, in that case, whiteness. But I think that far more people think that they understand Appalachia because they've seen a movie or two than because they've read a book or two. I don't think very many people outside of the region are as influenced by, um, you know, thinking that they understand the region because they've read Silas House. <laughs> Unfortunately, more people should be reading Silas House. But, um, but I don't think that that's the way that these images are shaped broadly. And importantly, I think that there's a lot of misrepresentation that happens in movies that I wanted to look at for this project. Which, of course, brings me to my next question, and so it worked <laughs> perfectly. First movie you mentioned in the book is Deliverance. Uh, mm-hmm. I think anybody who surprise, has seen Deliverance... Right. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, though, too, as to why it would be one of the early ones, especially since it did affect where you went with your research. How did this film play such an important role in your desire to examine film in Appalachia? Yeah, I mean, this is where the personal is really woven in. I grew up um, just across the state line from the river where um, Deliverance was filmed. And I, you know, rafted that river and I, I grew up going to diners where, you know, there were faded pictures behind the cash register of, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds and um, John Voight. So I grew up with sort of a general sense of connection to that film because I knew it was a film about the place where I lived. But of course, at that point, I hadn't seen the film and I didn't know anything about what, you know, what it was about. Um, as I got older, I, I saw the film sometime in college and thought of it as a pretty um, spectacular and horrifying. Um, well, I thought of it as a horror film and, and it didn't, occurred to me that, you know, yes, I recognized that it was set in Appalachia, but I just thought, well, that's, that is this horrific film that is very terrifying. And I don't want to have to see that again because it scared me. Um, and that was sort of all I thought about it. 
Then, I must admit, I've only seen the film. I've only seen the film once, and I have no interest in seeing it again. Which I is... don't think many people want to see it multiple times. It's, I mean, in terms of cinema studies, it's a there are some fantastic elements of the film, um, and so I'm not, you know, at all knocking the film as a film, but um, but yeah, it, unless you're kind of into horror films, it's it's not a fun one to watch over and over. Um, but I think it was when I left the South, when I left Appalachia and moved to Boston, I remember um, introducing myself as um, being from, I, I think I probably said from the mountains of North Carolina, something like that. I don't know if I would have said Appalachia. I might have said Appalachia, but um, but I was you know, kind of specific because to me, it means a different thing to be from the mountains of North Carolina than to be from the Piedmont or the coast of North Carolina. And probably to the person I was talking to in Boston, I could have just said the South and that would have worked for them. But um, I signaled that I was from the mountains of North Carolina and they answered me with the, you know, the banjo lick from, from Deliverance. I thought, uh, okay, that's odd that you just heard that that's where I'm from and that jumped into your head. And, and I don't know how, you know how I responded in that moment. I probably laughed along, but it happened over and over. And I thought, whoa, this is a really strange thing that when people hear Appalachia, they think of deliverance. And they're probably, I realized, thinking of deliverance in an indirect or secondary way that it might not even mean that that person has seen deliverance, that they understand what deliverance is, you know, the cultural um, space that deliverance takes up. And so that was the first thing that made me you know, really start to think about what's going on with deliverance and why are people associating me with deliverance. And then I moved back south and I would see, and this is in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I would see these bumper stickers that said, paddle faster, I hear banjo music. And I thought, what a weird sticker to put on your car. Do you know what that's referencing? Um, and it's and it's actually, and I write about this in the book a little bit, it's a, it's a very weird conflation of two completely separate scenes with two completely separate sets of characters. And it is efficiently conflating this, you know, this kid, um, the banjo boy in um, Deliverance, played by Billy Redden, um, with the rapists in the film from a latter scene. And so the what's being implied is that if you hear banjo music, <laughs> um, you know, anal rape is a threat. And so you should paddle fast to get away from the banjo music. And I have no idea how many people that put those stickers on their car are are understanding that conflation and are understanding what what's being signaled there. But that, I think, when I kept seeing that bumper sticker, that was when I thought, okay, I've got to do something and, and write something about deliverance. Yeah, uh, but I can see exactly what you mean. It's a, it was an aha moment in a way because it just sort of said, okay, this is an obvious example, but it's a good example. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. this is exactly the kind of situation, even though there are plenty others and we'll talk about yeah. them as a single example. It's, it's, it's perfect as far as showing yep. just how wrong, um, the whole view 
is or can be. Right. Well, and how simplified the view is. I mean, in truth, the film is more complex than that understanding of the film. And the book is more complex than the film adaptation of it. So that complexity gets kind of, you know, watered down with each iteration so that by the time people are simply referring to the movie as shorthand for a region, it's as if everyone in the region is, you know, somehow monstrous in this way. So that's an outside view of Appalachia and mm-hmm. how it's portrayed uh, by people. But let's go ahead now and get a little bit inside and bring up J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, because obviously okay. you discuss it in your introduction. At the time mm-hmm. you wrote, I'm sure it was at its its peak, although uh, <laughs> now that it's got a Netflix contract, is that it? Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, we're not losing it anytime soon. Um, no. But he's in interior, and and so... Where What were your issues with him as far as what he tried to say and how it, more importantly, seemingly represented all Appalachians? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of Vance, I've tried to be really clear that my my problem isn't with J.D. Vance telling a story about his life. I think that um, not only does everyone have the right to do that, I think that it's important for people to tell their stories and to um, have multiple perspectives out in the world that are, you know, rich and complex. And, and I love a world that makes space for that. So I think for J.D. Vance to tell his particular story about, you know, being raised in Ohio with connections, uh, you know, further south in Appalachia with his grandparents and, then eventually joining the Marines and making his way to Yale for law school. I think that that is, you know, that is his particular experience. My problem with the book is um, both has to do with his, with the perspective that he takes on as he writes, but also with the readership. And obviously I can't hold him accountable for the readership. So I'll try to, talk about those two separately, but he positions himself um, not only as an individual telling his story, but he he uses a lot of um, first person plural. He talks about we and us, and he is speaking on behalf of Appalachia in a way that I don't think anyone should. It's not just that I don't think that he should, but I don't think that anyone should um, be the spokesperson for a very complex region. A region so, that you say have just defining it is difficult depending. And it's often dependent on who's writing or who's trying to define as to where the definitions exactly. come from. Yeah. So when he, I think that it starts by looking at his subtitle, his subtitle is a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. And, um, Dwight Billings, who's a great scholar, wrote um, a review of Hillbilly Elegy where he called it, and I think I mentioned this in my introduction, but he calls it, um, well, all kinds of things. But he points out that you can't write a memoir of a culture. That is not a thing. If you're writing about culture, then that is sociology or history. You know, there's some different schools that... um, train you to write about culture, but uh, a memoir of a culture isn't really a genre. And so he's, he's taking this claim 
to speak on behalf of, uh, like you said, like we're saying here, a very complex and diverse region um, that's difficult to define. And so that, that is the issue that I had when I read the book was that I disagreed with a lot of the generalizations that he included about the region um, and what the region needed. Um, so there's, there's sort of this sense of we created these problems and we don't need any help. We'll fix them. And, you know, I, that, that is one perspective, but I don't know that that is um, a widely held perspective. And so he's, he's done a really um, smart rhetorical move here where he is using his personal story, where he gains empathy from the reader um, because it is, you know, it, it's a challenging uh, young life that he led and it's natural to feel happy for him that he was able to be successful, to find what for him was, um, you know, a definition of success. And, but, but he establishes that and then kind of quietly shifts into a kind of spokesperson for the region in a way that if you're not paying close attention it's easy to be swept away by that. And so that kind of shifts to the other issue that I had with the book, which was that <laughs> Hillbilly Elegy kind of became the new deliverance for me by, you know, it wasn't the same sort of joking um, banjo references, but really well-intentioned, um, you know, Northern liberals, some of whom I worked with and some of whom I just kind of wouldn't meet around um, in Maine and beyond would say, oh, I read Hillbilly Elegy. That's where you're from, right? Or, you know, I don't know that anyone ever explicitly said, I get where you're from now because I read Hillbilly Elegy. But that was the, that was what was implied, was that through reading Hillbilly Elegy, they understood Appalachia. And so they would bring it up to me. And so it has, you know, it's become sort of the book that represents the region uh, at this moment, and he can't control what's done with with the book, and that people are maybe uh, making that assumption. But he has definitely stepped into the role as spokesperson for Appalachia very eagerly, um, and I simply hope that there can be more voices. Um, not that he doesn't have right a right to his voice, but I think that there's space for a lot more voices than than just the one. And I know there are number of controversies within the academic community, the Appalachian academic community about his mm -hmm. roles and, and what he's been um, mm -hmm. brought on to do. Of course, I wanted to say it's just like a lawyer to come up with a brand new genre of uh, <laughs> cultural <laughs> memoirs. But yeah, unfortunately, it takes away from them. I mean, obviously, we know that Appalachia literature has many great memoirs. I mean, the concept of mm -hmm. a memoir is just so endemic to so much a part of Appalachia, mm -hmm. not to take it away from other regions, but I know there's just right. so many great uh, writers who have come up with things. So hopefully people will open their minds and read some of the other Appalachian yeah. memoirs, which are just memoirs uh, of those people. Too. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the other issue, and this is not new, unfortunately, not even new with uh, with Appalachia, is the concept that many people have this tendency of bringing up is that the blaming the victim again. 
uh-huh. the idea that somehow uh, it's up to, you know, these things are bad and why don't you straighten them out? Exactly. And that's the, the scholar I mentioned earlier, Dwight Billings, refers to this as the Moynihan Report of our time. So it's this idea of, you know, of course, Daniel Moynihan had this report looking at African-American families, and it was at least construed to, to be seen as a, a victim blaming um, as, as the premise of that report. And, and I think that that's that's what Billings is getting at here is that idea that you're mentioning of, of blaming people in Appalachia. And, you know, this probably isn't exactly a quote, but it's pretty close to a quote from the book. The, the thing I mentioned before of, you know, we created these problems and we don't need anybody to help us solve them. Yeah. So let's, let's turn then to um, the most important term because it's the first term in the title and that's unwhite. Mm-hmm. Um, you Definitely wanted to make a point that this is different from non-white. Uh, it's a combination. It's it's just completely separate as far as, but it's in particularly important here as it relates to Appalachian. It's also important to your work. Other I've heard I've seen the term a number of times with with mm-hmm. yours. How does unwhite best illustrate your vil- your views of Appalachia, particularly as it relates to films? Sure. I mean, I think it is very particularly in the relation of cinematic representation. So I don't, um, yeah, there might be ways that it expands outside of that. But the term unwhite is one that I developed um, as I was thinking about the ways that Appalachian people are almost always portrayed as phenotypically white in film. So there is this false sense of uniformity and of, you know, homogeneity in terms of, um, of, of race in the region. So they're, they're portrayed as almost always white in movies. And yet I couldn't get my head around what was going on in terms of othering. And so I really wrestled with these ideas of, um, you know, how to understand these portrayals of Appalachian people. And what what happened, if you'll um, allow me to tell a little bit of of how I came to this project, I think I'll be able to to set up this term itself. But I set out to extend a project begun by Jerry Williamson, who has written a couple of important books about representations of Appalachian people in movies. And he had this extensive list that he had cataloged and kind of passed that along to me. And in continuing to catalog it and work to um, get that into a digital format, I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to dispel these myths that there are only a few different types of Appalachian people in movies and, or that there are only a few different types of Appalachian people. And so I'm going to write something that shows the wide diverse range of Appalachian people through cinematic depictions. And so I started watching movies and I would take notes and I watched movie after movie after movie. And they, the depictions of Appalachian people kept falling into these same categories. And so I was disappointed in that and kept trying to find exceptions and occasionally found exceptions, but the exceptions sort of, you know, proved the, the pattern that I was seeing of these, um, 
I guess you said the exception proves the rule. So there were these rules that I was seeing and these patterns that I was seeing. And it made me think about um, this great book by Donald Bogle called Toms, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, which is um, an important text in black cinema studies arguing that of all of the representations of African-Americans in cinema, they fall into those five categories. So I thought, oh gosh, is that what's happening here? Is Do we have just this handful of categories and is that going to be the book that I write? Is, you know, using these, these stereotypes to categorize representations of Appalachia. But I started thinking more about what mattered to me was not merely cataloging types, but trying to understand the function, what was happening when um, Appalachian characters were portrayed so narrowly falling into a handful of types. And what I thought first was happening is a similar thing that was happening with representations of African-Americans, which is implicit in Bogle's cataloging, um, that these this reliance on a few narrow stereotypes is serving a function to... Um, resist complexity, resist character development, resist deep empathy with characters on the part of the audience, and really to cast an entire race of people as somehow outside of the norm and other them in order to um, set as the norm or as more central the white figure's um, in the film or the white figures who sometimes don't even appear in the film, but who are implied. So I, in studies of African-American cinema, there's an understanding that these, this reliance on, on types is you know, setting aside a complex group of people into a few roles to have them serve as the other. And I realized that a similar thing was happening with the depiction of Appalachian people. What was tricky to navigate was is my insistence that I am not equating the experience of Appalachian people to the experience of non-white people in this country. Quite simply, the the history has been very different, and it it just wouldn't be accurate. It wouldn't be historically accurate to equate um, those experiences. So I created this term unwhite in order to try to draw attention to the way that there's this simultaneous assumption of and exclusion from an imagined community of whiteness. And that um, kind of plays into this investment in the protection of whiteness. So the more we see Appalachian people uh, depicted in these tropes that have long been used to depict non-whites and they're kind of familiar to us and we get like, oh, this is kind of a um, a buffoon figure. So we don't take them seriously and they're here for comic relief or, oh, this is kind of like a mammy figure and she's going to serve a particular function, but we don't have to worry so much about her and we don't need her whole backstory. That is ultimately whether the figure is non-white or is, in these cases, Appalachian, they are holding up this imagined purity of the white characters. And so if we take, if we look at representations of whiteness, and then we, we take the 
um, Appalachian people and put them into the special category of unwhite, then it still it leaves whiteness as more intact and pure. And so that is that's why I use the term unwhite is to intentionally um, draw focus to the way that racial hierarchies are functioning and to be as clear as I can that Appalachian people are portrayed as, you know, typically white, but do not have, um, but are, but are portrayed using these tropes uh, used to depict non-whites. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I guess the way I looked at it was they're not white, but they also have characteristics, negative characteristics that come from negative views of others. And it's almost like a combination, but, uh, but really is nothing. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of, and a stereotypical, of course, you know, stereo, the fact that it's stereotypical is obvious, but um, like I say, I, when, when I read your introduction and your discussion of that, I said, you know what, that does make a perfect sense. It's clear that this is a group of people or a group, a region that has been treated, that is treated a certain way that you can't really put in one group or in the other group, but still mm-hmm. deserves to be in a group by itself. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, the reason I wanted to use the term white in the title, rather than just focusing on, you know, rurality or on poverty, is that, for one, I think that the understanding of, of or the misunderstanding, the, the generalization of, of Appalachia crosses those boundaries of, uh, well, it crosses boundaries of race that most people are not even thinking about racial diversity in, in the region but it crosses these boundaries of um, class lines and so, and, you know, of rural places and urban places within Appalachia. The understanding of Appalachia outside of the region, the sort of generalized stereotype is that it is rural, that it is white, and that it is poor, despite, you know, actual evidence to to complicate all of that um, and to diversify it. But I wanted to make sure that white critical whiteness theory is at the heart of this book, and I wanted to include the word white in the title to show the really tricky ways that um, imagined whiteness and white privilege is held intact. So it's held intact um, through the depiction of Appalachian people as other because they don't complicate what it means to be white. If we treat them as somehow not quite white or unwhite, then whiteness gets to remain um, in power as this imagined pure state. And that to me is is absolutely dangerous and uh, threatening. And the more that we can dismantle it, um, well, the first step to dismantling it, according to scholar Richard Dyer, is to make whiteness strange. You have to see it. You have to see that it is a construction 
in order to begin to understand how that construction functions and then begin to dismantle it by, by pointing at it and calling it out as a thing that is, that is constructed and, and is, is doing work. Um, this concept of, of whiteness is, is doing a lot of work and doing a lot of harm. And I was thinking, um, it also goes back to the definition, quote unquote, of what Appalachia is. And you mm-hmm. mentioned it in the introduction again <laughs> of how the term, how Appalachia has <clears throat> developed over the years. And when people hear Appalachia, they tend to focus exactly on what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And yet Appalachia is just as a diverse region, is, is really a diverse region, depending on particularly locate geographic wise, lived mm-hmm. in Birmingham for four years and it's even though that's the tip, that's the bottom mm-hmm. half part of Appalachia, it's completely different from, say, where I'm living now in northeastern Kentucky. And yet, right. for some reason, they all get lumped together as being the same and often bad. Right. Yeah, well, it's sort of, I mean, there are ways that I think that the South is the scapegoat for America and Appalachia is the scapegoat for the South. And that's not, you know, an original idea. Certainly people have talked about that. But the, the purpose that the Mountain South plays for the rest of the country, um, which I think, you know, I'm not a, you know, political theorist or anything like that. But I think that we saw that play out a bit after the election of Trump. And I think that that's part of the explanation of the, the popularity of hillbilly elegy was that people were trying to understand voting patterns. And it gave liberals a chance to excuse them for doing what they did Mm. somehow. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the chapters because your first three chapters are developed, are looking at narrative films um, Mm -hmm. specifically. And one of them uh, goes back to deliverance. So let's, let's look at that chapter briefly. Um, How does deliverance and some of the other films you mentioned uh, transform the people, the, the Appalachians into what you call representative representation of the bad American Indian. Yeah. I mean, what I'm, what I tried to do in the first three chapters, um, I settled on and the settling on the organization for this book was a challenge. And I hope that this simplified what I was, what I was trying to assert by, by doing these pairings. So the first chapter um, pairs deliverance, with Last of the Mohicans. And in both of these cases, I'm really only looking at the movie versions. And for Last of the Mohicans, I'm looking at the 1992 Michael Mann version with, you know, uh, that, that I think is, is probably the most copy, popular one. And so in that chapter, I am, in order to show the way that um, the people depicted in Deliverance align with familiar depictions of Native Americans in movies, I, I parallel, I, I began by, by talking about the, the way that Native Americans have been portrayed in film and that there's kind of this spectrum of the, this romanticized Native American who is uh, doomed to extinction. There are lots of movies that you can probably, that come to mind when you think of that kind of heroic but doomed figure who we want to um, who we, who we want to sort of celebrate, but we celebrate him as a relic. Um, and so that is that is present and comparable, I think, to the the people in deliverance whose 
home will be flooded um, by Georgia Power. So when this river is going to be flooded, then all of those people will be displaced. And so the way that we see uh, the people like the, in the scene where we have the banjo duel, um, the the family that's there around this gas station, living nearby the gas station and um, that community is is doomed. They are already a, seen as a relic and they're romanticized in that scene um, where these, you know, these, these men from Atlanta have come to town to raft this river before it becomes a lake to create power for them in Atlanta. And they're doing it for, um, for the sake of adventure really. And it's you know, tied in some important ways to uh, this idea of rugged masculinity, which comes up in the chapter um, and, and is really important in the depiction of the, the characters. So they, they come and they see these people living in Appalachia and romanticize the sort of genius of um, Lonnie is the name of the character's name of the banjo boy. The, the sort of genius of that character who can play the banjo in this miraculous way. But they're also kind of horrified at the condition in which these this group of people live. So that I parallel to the Mohicans in Lost of the Mohicans, who are um, who it's a group of of Native Americans who are dying out. At the other extreme, there is this savagery that is tied to kind of a, maybe a hyper masculinity, but um, certainly this brutal animalistic savagery that you see in Lost of the Mohicans among. Um, Magua is one of the the uh, Indians who is who is brutal and ruthless, and I think that that is in the film in order to justify the erasure of the of, of Native Americans. So you have unchecked this this sweet uh, sort of sentimental, simple kind of person. If they're unchecked in the wilderness, then they become savage. And that's the argument that's being made in Deliverance. So you have these these sort of people that are uh, that are curious and belong to another time, but then we have these other characters who um, appear in another scene in the film and um, and rape one person and attempt to rape another. And the idea is unchecked that that um, in the wilderness it will become this this savagery. And so that justifies the erasure of that place and the removal of those people. And so the parallel between those two films, to me, is also tied to the the key character in each film who navigates um, and has access both to like how to survive in the wilderness, but also how to leave and how to survive um, outside of those places that are depicted in each um, so. so then, as you point out, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, the three chapters are meant to represent, you know, to show representation. So the next chapter then comes to the stereotypical mammy view mm-hmm. compared to um, Appalachian women. And mm-hmm. then the third chapter re- uh, compares. Appalachian migrants to Mexican migrants. Mm-hmm. So, did, are these examples? Uh, how did you 
show a little bit about how these examples uh, came clear to you as in your studying? Sure. I wanted to, I broadened my thinking about depictions of non-white. Well, I was really thinking first about depictions of African-Americans in film. And I broadened that to think about functionally how have Mexican-Americans and how have Native Americans been represented in film. And I chose those um, groups because of the way that America has depended upon um, a belittling of those minority groups in different ways, but um, that the overall agenda has been to maintain a sense of um, American identity that ex- is exclusive, that, um, that, ex- that, yeah, that excludes non-whites. And so in looking at the depiction of um, of Native Americans I just mentioned, the way that that has functioned and that I paired that with deliverance. And looking at the depiction of um, African Americans, I think this probably came to me first by, by watching Cold Mountain, which is a book by Charles Frazier that I absolutely adore and is a movie uh, that I, you know, that was okay, <laughs> that I did not adore, but I didn't hate either. Um, and so the depiction of, or the, the character of Ruby Thews, who is, who is a rich and complex and uh, interesting character in the book, becomes, in my opinion, a caricature in the film version of Cold Mountain. And she immediately made me think of a mammy figure. And uh, partly it's because of the setting, both uh, Cold Mountain is, is set during the Civil War, and Ruby Thews is an Appalachian woman who comes to the aid of a Southern belle from Charleston, who ends up um, in Cold Mountain, which is an imaginary town in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And this Southern Belle, Ada Monroe, really needs support from someone who is practical, dogmatic, clear-headed, um, and and is able to function in this this time of great chaos and strife. And it's just very similar to the Hattie McDaniel embodiment of the Mammy figure in um, the film version of Gone with the Wind. So that pairing to me was a clear way to demonstrate what has been, um, what's been sometimes a tricky thing to show about the depiction of Appalachian women as both um, sometimes victims, but also my argument has always been that to depict uh, Appalachian women as victims is short-sighted and doesn't, um, when you look more closely at Appalachian literature, you see this fierceness and this independence that um, that you don't see often in um, cinematic depictions of Appalachian women. And I think that the Ruby Thews character, um, is, as much as she becomes kind of a car- caricature, I think that it does capture that duality of, of being, um, you know, being kind of this feisty, uh, mountain woman. And then finally, in chapter three, I wanted to look at the urban Appalachian experience or the, the migrant Appalachian experience. Um, and because, as you know, um, being from Ohio, there are large communities of Appalachian people who, who migrated outside of the region. And I was really interested in thinking about the ways that the maintenance of uh, a cultural connection to Appalachia has is usually um, 
in in terms of cinematic portrayals of mountain migrants, that's really the focus is that they are kept out of full access to wherever it is that they're living because they are tied emotionally or culturally to a place that they've left and to which they often hope to return. And that is similar in many ways to the depictions of um, Mexican immigrants um, who are tied culturally to a place that they have left. The good thing then is that you also get a chance to talk about documentaries, which is one of my Mm -hmm. personal interests. And one of the things about that chapter is that the, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you actually have found some good examples yes. in documentaries. And I'd love to talk a little bit of briefly yeah. about, about the good things you found. Absolutely, yeah. I was really eager to find that, too, because I, I set about to write this book. And by the time I got through these pairings and the first three chapters, I thought, oh, this is really depressing. Surely there's some hope, because I really anticipated that I would be writing about the exceptions and the models of great representations of complex Appalachians. And I didn't find very many in narrative film. Where I did find that absolutely was an Appalachian documentary. And I think that that has to do with a history in the region of, um, you know, it's sort of a reaction to having stories told about um, a place that eventually the people in that place had had enough and decided to find ways to tell their own stories. And I think that you can point to a moment in time when that happened, when the war on poverty was launched um, in, uh, in Appalachia and was tied to Appalachia. And that led to a lot of um, outside documentarians coming into the region and briefly and taking some pictures. And I'm sure that they were well-intentioned, many of them, but the stories that were told in the images that were shown were very simplistic and they were often literally the same road that the, that the documentarians drove down. And so what, what's fantastic about this, and I think really captures part of the spirit of Appalachia that does not get shown enough is this fierce determination to fight back and the, the fighting back here took the form of, um, of learning how to use cameras and learning how to tell their own stories. And so Apple Shop in um, Whitesburg is a great example of, uh, and is a great center and hub for where this work has taken place. Um, and the Appalachian Media Institute that's a part of that trains um, students, trains people from the region to use cameras and to create podcasts, to get their own stories out there. And so one of the films that I write enthusiastically about is Stranger with a Camera. And Elizabeth Barrett um, had a connection and and came through the Appalachian Media Institute. Um, And she's really looking at, I mean, it's a little meta here because it's a a documentary about documentaries of Appalachia. Um, but I think that what she's doing is allowing for complexity. She's not, this isn't a reaction where it swings to the, where the pendulum swings so far to the other side that the only stories that can be told about the place are positive and simple. And that's one of the things that I celebrate about um, Stranger with a Camera is the complexity 
And similarly, the other um, project that I focus on in the documentary chapter is an interactive documentary called Hollow. It was produced by Elaine McMillian, who is from McDowell County. And um, Hollow is a series of, I'm not sure the right language to use, but they're almost like vignettes that have been recorded of, of several different people around McDowell County. And the interactive nature of the documentary means that the viewer is um, empowered to choose where they slow down, where they want to stop and watch a clip, where they want to keep moving. Um, so there is a way that you can watch this as a compilation of clips, but it was designed um, to be an interactive documentary that the um, that you interact with on your computer. And so the, the viewer is able to navigate this and hear the stories and, uh, that, that they choose. And the, the nature of that is something that I celebrate that, that complicates this monolithic story being told from an outside perspective about a place as it's kind of a dying place that it needs our sympathy. And I think that both of these projects do really complicated work to show Appalachia as a place that is that has challenges, that has very real economic challenges, um, that certainly has, um, I, I guess, geologic challenges. There are, there, are, um, there are issues facing that region that are very important and need attention. And there are people within the region not only fighting back actively, like um, we saw uh, yesterday with the strike of West Virginia teachers that was effective. So it's that sort of fighting back against the problems. But there's also a lot of hope and beauty that is um, that is worth celebrating. And so it's not always um, it doesn't always need to be framed so negatively the way that um, that many films tend to to emphasize when they're looking at Appalachia. What's great about Apple Shop is that they not only they have a streaming service that's quite inexpensive, so you can watch a lot of the films mm-hmm. on the site, but also the radio station, WMMT, has had yeah. such great public publicity for all the stuff, mm-hmm. all the things they do. And the nice thing is, is that uh, anybody can watch the films and listen to the yeah. radio station on their website. And it just helps to show the positives. And that's why I'm so glad that Absolutely. at least in the documentaries chapter, you were able to find <laughs> more positives, which is great. I mean, you know, the negatives yeah. are there, but it's it's sort of like you yeah. sort of end on the positives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that it is, I mean, the what motivated this project for me was my frustration at seeing a place that I love so deeply and being portrayed as simply terrible. And the way that that played out where there was this sense that people who had never been to Appalachia seemed to think that it was great that I got out. (laughs) That is not at all how I felt or how I feel. And, um, and so I really, you know, the heart of this project is a, an appreciation for Appalachia. And so though it does get a little dark in my uh, criticism of these, these narrow depictions, I do that 
hopefully to create an opening for more complex depictions of this place that, you know, it wouldn't be hard to, to portray it in a more complex way. All you have to really do is show up with a with an open mind and, um, and, and pay attention. And then, of course, you have a, actually included an appendix, Appalachian mm-hmm. Types in Cinema, uh, real briefly. We're getting uh, long yeah. here. Uh, where did that chapter come from? Because it's as that an appendix, chapter- obviously, it's something that sort of must have come along late in yeah. the process. That chapter came along at the, I think, good encouragement of the press that I had. Um, at some point, I had those character types woven into the chapters, and that muddied the argument that I was making um, to draw the comparison between the films. But they really didn't want to lose the work that I had done, where I'm looking beyond just these um you know, these, these six or eight films in the appendix, and I'm really kind of doing more of a cataloging um, tied to, you know, similar to the Donald Bogle work. So the suggestion to put this in an appendix was one that I so appreciate. And when I've heard from faculty who have taught this book and other people who've read the book, that has been a really useful resource for them um, to understand the, the categories of characters that, um, that are kind of, you know, that that you see over and over in Appalachian film. I think that that's a useful tool for a lot of people. So I'm glad that it, that we kept it in there. So going forward, uh, obviously knowing that you've been studying this for a long time already, I'm assuming you're still going to continue your study of this, of these concepts, but do you have anything specific uh, going forward and projects wise? Um, I don't have anything super specific, but I have some ideas. I'm just on the other end of a um, co-edited collection called Appalachian Reckoning, a region response to hillbilly elegy, which I worked on with Anthony Harkins. So as that finishes up, I am more and more interested in, thinking about the function of memoir, because I do think it's very powerful. So there's a possibility there. Um, But I've also been thinking back to this project that I did for my master's thesis, where I was looking at depictions of Appalachian women in literature. And, you know, there might be something there to return to. It might be good to get off a film for a little while. See if you yeah. can find things to get upset about. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, well, yeah, as, as a matter of fact, I have a copy of Appalachian Reckoning, a galley that I'm planning on setting up an interview with you and, and your co-editor. Right. So hopefully we'll, we will be talking about that for anybody that's interested. Uh, well, anyway, um, I must tell you that this, I really enjoyed the book. I enjoyed the topic. I think you did a great job of laying it out. And even though obviously this is an academic work, I think it's very approachable uh, for people who are trying to get a better sense of of how the region is, is viewed and more importantly, what kind of things are available to go the other direction and maybe, if not push back, certainly develop a more um, fair representation of Appalachia. Well, I hope so. And I'd like to thank you for talking to me. Um, as I say, this has been a great uh, discussion, and I really thank you for your time, Meredith. Absolutely. Thank you so much. 
I'd like to thank Meredith McCarroll for her time. Her book is a great, different, and interesting view of a much maligned region. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.